Hello and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher with 15 years of classroom experience. I like to think I can capture the attention of a rowdy class and explain long division, but when it comes to exams, I have to admit there are some things I still don't quite understand. And I'm sure you might feel similarly perplexed at times too. So across this series, I'm asking what you're keen to know from exam boards. Armed with your questions, I'm meeting the people behind the question papers to get some answers. First, though, I've got a question for you. Outside the classroom, how often do you come across multiple choice questions? A. Never. B. Occasionally. Or C. Almost every day. I'd argue the correct answer is C. Think about it. At the doctor's, you might be asked to tick the box that best describes how active you are. Maybe you're having a drink and doing a local pub quiz last night. We're constantly having to choose between multiple options. But what I want to know is, in an exam context, are multiple choice questions A. A valuable confidence boost B. Only useful for basic recall or C. Unnecessarily demanding I'll keep my own questions in mind, but I also want to know what you want to know. I'm Caroline Wilkes. I've been teaching for approximately 20 years. As a mathematician, one of the things that we've had introduced um, at GCSE level is multiple choice questions. These didn't really exist for us before on previous syllabuses. One thing we are finding with them is they're fantastic revision questions because the answers aren't just random. They will give three misconceptions as well as the correct answer. I'm interested to know how you would come up with a multiple choice question for the purposes of assessment, though. You know, are you looking for questions where the other answers are typical misconceptions? Is that something that you're doing on purpose? So... Is the best way to approach writing a multiple choice question A. To write the question first B. Start with your correct answer Or C. Come up with distractors first If you haven't heard of a distractor before it might sound a bit Machiavellian but it's just a technical term for the incorrect options that every multiple choice question needs Like Caroline, I honestly have no idea where to begin so I'm going to meet Zeke Sweary, a senior researcher at AQA, for a little help. Zeke, absolutely fantastic to meet you. I cannot wait for this conversation because I'm just going to put it out there from the start. I absolutely love a multiple choice question. <laughs> Excellent. And I love, nothing makes me happier than speaking to somebody else who loves them as well. But I'm very much aware that there's some criticisms of multiple choice questions, perhaps some misconceptions, and I want to dive into all of that in this conversation. My first question for you, Zeke, is there's a perception that multiple choice questions are easier to answer than non-multiple choice questions. We'll dig into that later. But are they easier to write than non-multiple choice questions? That's a good question. And, and I think generally the answer that, that you'll find in the research and from test developers is absolutely not. They're, mm. they're not easier to write. The fundamental difficulty, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go along, comes down to coming up with good, plausible distractors yes. to, to the questions. And the whole validity of a multiple choice question will ultimately depend on having plausible distractors. Those can often be the challenging part of multiple choice questions to write. The other huge challenge is that it's it's often said that multiple choice questions cannot be written to assess higher order skills. Mm. They can, but again, there's a challenge in doing that. 
let's imagine that together we're going to write a multiple choice question. I mean, nothing will make me happier. Where, where, <laughs> would, where would the process start for you? What, do you start with the question or do you start with the answers? Perhaps the way I would go about things, and, and I can, I'll explain a, f- a few reasons why, mm. would be to start with an idea of what it is that you want to assess. For example, if you're working with a particular curriculum or specification, what statement within that specification or curriculum that it, it is that you want mm. to assess? But without actually writing the question, the next point is really about thinking about what it is you want to assess and at the same time, simultaneously, whether there are misconceptions or other types of plausible distractors that would go along with a correct answer to that point Mm. that you want to assess. Otherwise, the danger is, and probably the most common cause of having invalid questions, is to write the question, then write your answer as one of the four options, and then just think, right, I need to come up with three other alternative options. That's It's fair to say the wrong way of writing questions because if the distractors become an afterthought in that way, Mm. they're almost always susceptible to a number of problems that will generally mean that the question will be invalid and almost redundant within a test. So you're writing the question with the misconceptions in mind. And and if you leave those distractors to the end, that's when we run into problems. Is that right? I I think that's absolutely right. It's not always fair to call them misconceptions. Oh, okay. So... In some subjects, it's easier to think of alternative answers as misconceptions. So, for example, in in mathematics, if I asked a question that required the candidates to add fractions, Mm. then there are some obvious misconceptions there about adding the denominators together and so on. In other subjects, we might not necessarily think of them as, as misconceptions. So, for example, if this was an English reading assessment, then really there are no misconceptions that exist before that text has been created ah, that, that, the, that the test is based on. So ultimately, in, in, rather than thinking about them as misconceptions, it's often the case that you're thinking about what the competing information is. So for example, if the question was what year was certain person born, then if there are other numbers or years within that text, then those become the distractors. Yes. They're not really misconceptions in the same way as those, as those maths examples are. That's really interesting. I've only got experience of writing maths multiple choice questions. My bias suggests that maths lends itself particularly well to multiple choice questions. But, I mean, do you agree with that or are they equally suitable to all subjects? I think that maths perhaps lends itself well to multiple choice questions in relation to other subjects when your primary purpose for writing is is for formative diagnostic mm, purposes. Mm. Because going back to that point about misconceptions, they usually are, for, for any piece of mathematics you want to assess, they usually are common misconceptions which the question writers, the teachers are, are well aware of. And by including those within questions, there's a really powerful diagnostic aspect to it because you can then start to look across, for example, a class as to what the common misconceptions are, what the things you really want to then teach are to ensure that your class really understands the concepts. Mm. I think one of the things is that the biggest advantages of multiple choice questions are that they are more reliable to mark Mm. and you can assess more of the curriculum in a shorter space of time, if you like. But that doesn't necessarily work in the same way for mathematics because 
if the answer is a single number, it is essentially as reliable to mark yes. if it was open as if it was a multiple choice question. So you don't, and all, and it's the same really with the content coverage point. So you don't necessarily get the same advantages in a summative assessment mm. where there is no diagnostic purpose to writing questions as multiple choice. What are, what are some of the key things that your question writers need to bear in mind when they're putting together a multiple yeah. choice question? The Aspects of the question are split up into four key areas. The biggest one by far are distractors. Mm. And uh, as we said before, the validity of the question really rests on the quality of the distractors. And the two key points about the properties of the, of the distractors, they must be plausible. Yes. And they must be wrong, which actually <laughs> yeah. sounds in many subjects is more difficult than, yes. than, than I've just made it sound, just, just simply to say they must be wrong. In a subject like, let's take English reading again, where there is going to be more subjectivity, there's going to be individual responses to the text that's just been mm. read then there's there's always the danger that two different students could legitimately have read the same bit of text and understood it in a slightly different mm. way. And so what we might think of as, as an objectively correct answer to a question isn't necessarily, and there yes. may be other ways of interpreting that question. Just on distractors, because obviously this is a massive part of, of multiple choice questions. So plausibility is in there. And, and is that essentially saying there's no point having a redundant answer? That if, if you yeah. can't think of three plausible distractors, you can only think of two. Well, then just have it out of three options, the correct answer and two plausible ones, as opposed to just shoehorning in one that's that's pointless. Is, is that the point? I th th that touches on a lot of important points. And, and yes, fundamentally, it is. So to give you a simpler and, you know, in a sense, more trivial example, if I, if I asked you the capital of a country that you may be less familiar with the capital of, say, let's say if I picked Eritrea oh, as, as a capital. Come on, don't. Then, <laughs> then you, at this point, you don't know the answer. I'm in trouble. I'm hoping, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, but if I give you three options that are London, Paris and Rome. Oh, now, okay. Now yes. you know the answer. Things are looking up. So that question has failed to ascertain ah, yes. whether you know the capital of, of Eritrea. You know, the distractors have actually fundamentally given the answer away to you. That's interesting. And, and it, even though that's in sense a trivial example, it works exactly the same way within most assessments. If it's that easy to discard the distractors for a candidate that doesn't have the required subject knowledge to answer, mm. then fundamentally it's not assessing. The question isn't assessing what we intended it to assess. Yes. So I haven't assessed whether you knew the capital of Eritrea in that. The difficulty here is with the tension between trying to make the distractors plausible mm. and wrong. Yes, yes. And so the danger is that as soon as you make them wrong, mm. you know, entirely and objectively wrong in every sense, then in many subjects there's a danger that they become easy to treat as implausible yes, and yes. see they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned one of the big advantages here is the reliability in terms of the marking. But it sounds to me there's a hell of a lot of effort needs to be put in to make sure that we get that advantage whilst not getting the disadvantages of implausibility and, and so on. Is it worth it, Zeke? Are we, are we getting enough benefit from the reliability to out way all these potential minefields that we could stumble upon to get in that right question? I think that's a good question and different people will give you different answers. So in America, just based on the fact that they use multiple choice so extensively, mm. they would absolutely argue yes. Mm. We have 
in in this country, we've always been slightly multiple choice averse. Yes, yes. Therefore, we might come up with a different answer to that question. I think the best way to approach it is to to ask what the best way of asking a particular question is. Because you do have different advantages and disadvantages, then by thinking about the piece of content you want to assess, it's often possible to start distinguishing between those advantages and disadvantages and thinking about, for that particular question, whether it's going to work better Uh in one format or another. So as an example, if I ask the question, why is, this is a science question, why is ammonia sometimes added to drinking water? Okay. Then that's a constructed response question. And as a constructed response question, that might work perfectly well. Mm. Then I start to think about whether I can come up with plausible distractors to this question. And it's not easy to do yeah. so. And this this is actually based on a past question from decades ago that I that I came across. And the distractors in this question, one of them was to make the water undrinkable. Right. And one of them is to make the water green. Right. And so we all know that, you know, that those two cannot be sensible responses to that question. And and therefore it hasn't worked as a multiple choice right. question in that case. And you might argue that as a constructed response question, it would have been a more valid question, a more valid assessment of that candidate's understanding of that particular point. Probably the next most important are about the language. Mm -hmm. There is one not often discussed advantage of multiple choice questions, which is that constructed response questions are much prone to ambiguity than multiple choice questions. Mm. If I asked you a constructed response question, then there may often be more than one way of interpreting it. Right. If I ask that question as a multiple choice question, then quite often... The very fact that I've given you four options and one of those must be correct has reduced the possible number of interpretations you could apply to that question. There are, though, still a number of language issues that do need to be thought of. Most of them are the same issues you would consider with constructed response questions. There are some that that need to be considered specifically to multiple choice, or they're more important perhaps within multiple choice. So the uh, one that often comes up is the use of negative words like not. Right. Now, for a number of reasons, the use of negative words in questions tends to cause problems for for test takers. Right. There's two dimensions, I think, to this. One of them is that it can add to the language complexity of a sentence. Okay. And the other one is that it's quite easy to overlook the word. And the danger is that Ah. if you overlook the word then you're answering the wrong question, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the entirely wrong yes. question. And so there's been examples of research where this issue has been trialled and the effect of simply emboldening the word not in that question is drastic in terms of the performance of the students wow. because it, it's a short word, so you're more yes. likely to miss it, but also because most questions in tests are written in the positive. Mm. So that's our default. That's our expectation. Ah, yes. So if, if the question goes against that, then we're going to miss it. But the point to stress really in relation to multiple choice with negative words is that I, I think that the challenge in dealing with, with negatives and multiple choice is actually greater. Mm. And so to give you an example, there's nothing wrong and sometimes it's necessary to to use not in a very simply constructed sentence which of these is not x and you know whatever that happens to be and that 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 sort of thing could be used in science or, or anything else the other one point that's maybe specific to multiple choice when it comes to language is that you've often got a choice when you write a multiple choice question about two types of format the first one is writing the stem Mm -hmm. as a question so Mm -hmm. it ends in a question mark 
And then you've got your four options or how many it is below that. The other method is called sentence completion or stem completion. And what happens there is that the stem is the start of a sentence Mm. and one of the options correctly completes the stem. Now, both of those that I think the literature would suggest and my experience would also say are fine, except for the one danger, which is that when the the word count, if you like, for the question is high, Mm. then there is a greater danger with the sentence completion one. Imagine you had several lines of text in the stem Mm. and then each option was also several lines long. Then you've suddenly got to hold in your head everything Ah, in that stem and then read it against each one of the options to decide which one's correct. Wow. I mean, you've given us loads already. Is there anything else that springs to mind? Well, the next type of issue Mm. is really about cues that give away so Ah. this is the the, so we've talked about distractism we've talked about language yes the third is about unintended cues Mm. okay that give away the answers to the questions now in america students are much more familiar with this as an issue they are taught that if you don't know the answer to a question you really have no idea then look out for certain cues oh. that might allow you to eliminate some of the distractors and, oh, right. and, and therefore get to the correct answer without actually possessing the required knowledge. It's still something at the end of the question writing process. It's not something that, you, you know, I'd want to impede people's thinking when they're writing and you know, when they're getting to the heart of the distractors and the yes. content. But at the end, it's a check. Are there any cues? Are there any properties of the, of the distractors in the STEM that are giving away the answer? And so, so some of those might be that there is often considerably more detail in the correct option (laughs) than in the three incorrect um, options to the question. Now, it's often the nature of the option makes it require more words. But to the student who's been taught this, it's a giveaway that that's likely to be the correct answer. You know, those are another set of things to think about. But as I say, I would always look at those right at the end of the process. They shouldn't impede your thinking while you're writing. I'll tell you what I'm thinking here, Zeke. Because as a teacher, I've used lots of multiple choice questions in, in my teaching. Because I think they're great to provoke discussion between students. What, even if the student knows that option A is the right answer. Well, why is B wrong? Why is C wrong? What other one would you have chosen? What other plausible distractor? I think they're a great teaching tool. But I'm worried here, Zeke. I, I'm certainly not putting enough thought into these compared to, to your question writers. So should I and other teachers be using these? Or is it is it too dangerous to use them if we're not considering all all these all these kind of guidelines i think there are lots of very good reasons to use multiple choice in the classroom i think that the one that you mentioned earlier about using misconceptions mm. is is absolutely fundamental there isn't always the time to look at you know long answers to questions that students might give and look across lots and lots of of responses you know potentially a whole test of responses mm. and try and think about where students are going wrong and where their misconceptions lie that ability particularly in mathematics to base your options on misconceptions can tell you so much about students understanding of a particular topic that would otherwise take a considerable considerable amount of time to gauge if you were asking the same questions in a constructed response format well zeke I have had one of the best times I've ever had it. This is this is my kind of day, this, chatting about multiple Excellent. choice questions. So thank you so much for your time today. I've loved every second. Thank of you. It. I've really enjoyed it too. Thanks. It's clear that exam boards are real fans of multiple choice questions. Quite rightly, I think. So how can we teach our students to answer them well? And what's the merit in using them throughout the year as a clever learning tool? 
Ginny Bell is a science teacher at Gillsborough Academy. I'm going to meet her to find out how she likes to use them. So, hello Ginny. Hello. First off, thank you so much for inviting us into your lovely classroom. Absolutely wonderful to have you. And I wonder if we could start by just giving us a bit of context about your school, if that's all right. Absolutely, yeah. So, we are an academy and we are based in Northamptonshire. We are an 11 to 18 college, so we go from Key Stage 3 right up to A-level. Now, previously I've been speaking to AQA's multiple choice guru. Now, he's absolutely loving multiple choice questions, but I want to get to the truth of the matter. So, as a science teacher, what do you think of them? They are a fabulous way of being able to almost test students on a really broad area of the curriculum, really. What I quite like about them, I think, is that there's lots of different ways to do the questions. So it can, I mean, especially for science, you can look at the structures of things and you can look at how well they understand definitions and things like that. On the other side of things, in terms of multiple choice questions, I sometimes think that often being worth just one mark can mean that students almost throw that away a little bit, kind of just treat it as a, oh, oh it's a one marker, I'm not really sure. And honestly, you will not believe the amount of students who don't even answer a multiple choice. You're joking. I'm not. Leaving them out completely. Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that one, miss. Okay, but it's a multiple choice. Might as well have a go. Let's just just have a guess at this, guys. Yeah. What's your students' view of them? Do they like them? I think they like doing them. I think they like the fact that it feels sometimes fairly high challenge, sometimes a nice low challenge, but it also feels quite low risk because they always know the right answer's there. Yes. And it's lovely for them to sit there and be able to say, Miss, I knew it wasn't that one brilliant so you're narrowing down your options yeah. and most of the time it's it's out of no more than four sometimes only three the right answer is there they can look at the language the familiar keywords think about what they've learned and try to distinguish which one the correct one is i definitely think that's a strength of multiple choice questions but then at the same time i think sometimes looking at the answers they get a little bit confused between the differences between them. So it's, it's not always easy for them to choose the right one because they've got so many options there that if, I suppose, if it was a one marker where they had to write down the answer, they would sit, think, come up with an answer and they would just have to go for it. Whereas when it's multiple choice, they often read the answers before they've even read the question. <laughs> right. You know, they're just looking for something that looks the most familiar. They're looking for something sometimes, which, always, you know, it really gets me. Miss, it sounded the most scientific. Oh, OK, that's yeah, that's all yeah, very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, my advice to students is always read the question, work out your answer. And if it's there, go for it. Good yes. instinct, put it down, go for it. If it's not... <laughs> Go and have a rethink, you know, yes. get your highlighter out. <laughs> have a little look at the demand word. Do you get the sense that students perceive them as easier than the non-multiple choice questions? Because I've found this, that kids go in and think, oh, it's almost like a, I'll take a little mental breather here, I'll answer a couple of multiple choice, and then we'll get into the, the, the trickiest stuff. Or do you not find that? I think they do a little bit. I think there's always the element of, oh, it's multiple choice, the answer's there, it's nice and easy, just one mark, definitely. 
But on the other side of things, sometimes it's not a straightforward question and they're really frustrated. Oh, Miss, it's one mark and it was so hard. Yeah. They get to the stage where it's just almost not even guessing anymore. They're just kind of, you know, looking for things that look familiar or things like that. So I don't think they always necessarily find it easy. I think it can completely depend on the question. Sometimes, especially if it's a calculation or if you're looking at working something out in terms of interpreting the question, looking for an explanation, making the link, and sometimes really focusing on what the command word is at the start of it and sometimes the students will just oh it was it was so much work to do miss and it was so much thinking and oh oh it just wasn't worth it oh let's talk exam strategy okay strategy for answering these questions so yeah. aside from the kind of subject knowledge itself yeah are there any techniques you teach your students for specifically approaching multiple choice questions oh completely my first thing is definitely formulate the answer before you even read the options. And are we talking cover up cover up the options? It's a, yeah, like not not, yeah, not even look at them. You. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think by doing that, if you get the correct answer and it's there, you've got that good instinct, yep. you've got that confidence, and you can say, Yes, I've done this. If, however, you then have an answer that is not an option, it gives you a really good indication of where you may have gone wrong. Yes. Oh, this answer's too high. What have I read wrong? Let me go back to the question. On the other side of things, sometimes if there are similarities between answers, it's really key that students look at those uh, similarities to work out the differences before they get there. You know what? When I was, what, nine, ten years old, the last question on the maths paper was, which of the following pairs of numbers adds together to make one? Okay. And they gave four sets of pairs of numbers and they're all decimals and I got it wrong and I got it wrong because I just saw nine and one and went for it oh, I right. saw 0 0.9 and 0 0.01 and I ah. added them together and I got the wrong answer but what I did notice as a nine or ten year old is that there was also 0 0.35 and 0 0.65 yes and I looked at that and thought oh there must be two correct answers oh wow and I was really annoyed that I got that wrong. Yeah. That has stuck with me. Do you know what? It, 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 probably, it probably makes me more likely to say to the students, if you think there's two right, two that are correct, go back and look at the difference between them. Be very clear to yourself what it is you're reading. Yes. Try it again. Just recap it. Do it again. But if we're going to go back to what we said earlier, this is then worth so much more than one mark. And I think this is why students don't do it. I think that's probably why I didn't do it. I mean, I was nine years old. You can forgive me, right? <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. That is a beautiful sounding question. That straight away. <laughs> I like that. What I think makes a good multiple choice question is that if I'm your teacher and I see, let's say that was option A. Yes. You've answered that. I know the mistake you've made. Absolutely. I know the misconception. Yes. And I, whereas if it wasn't a multiple choice question, Correct. I've got to go through your working out. I've got to go through the other 30 kids in the class to try and figure out what these misconceptions are. Absolutely. But I can identify, if, if there's 20 kids in the class have all gone for A, I know yeah. it's a place value thing. I know Completely, it's the best yeah. So that's a big strength, isn't it? Absolutely, choice. yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why used in the classroom by teachers, they can be absolutely brilliant. Realistically, I think that's a great way of looking at it because it says to students, mistakes are common, mistakes are easy to make. You know, let's spot the, the common errors. Let's yeah. go and practice where people make these mistakes yes. and really eradicate those, like you say, misconceptions. So I think it can be really good for that. So we've talked about exams. Yeah. Let's talk about the use of multiple choice questions mm -hmm. in class throughout the year. Sure. Now, would you be a regular user of them outside of this kind of 
build up to exams? Would you use yeah. them throughout the year? And if, if so, how? Absolutely. They are so good for, and this is my favourite line, low risk, high challenge, just to get kids thinking about their facts, thinking about their knowledge, practising the recall. Because I think practising the recall is something that we probably take for granted, especially when you've been teaching a few years. You're so used to doing the topics, you're so used to the keywords, the knowledge, the facts that there are, that it comes back to us really easily. For students, it's probably the first and only time they'll ever be taught it and they'll ever learn it, especially the ones that don't do a lot of revision at home. And another reason that I absolutely love multiple choice is because you really can make them as simple or as difficult as you want. So you can give some students some really simple knowledge recall, like you say, to build confidence. Mm. And I think that's fantastic in lessons, especially in physics. Everybody hates physics. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Especially in um, subjects that they struggle with. What I also really like, though, is that you can build in misconceptions and common errors. And if you build in those common errors and get kids to almost... I don't want to say practice making errors, but I think that's exactly what it is. And it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to learn from those mistakes so that we look back in the future and go, oh, I've made this mistake before. Like, Let's not make it again. It's really interesting because there's, there's two things there. So the first is it's what Doug Lemoff calls planning for error. And it's mm. what we talked about before. Whereas Completely. if you're going to go into a lesson and you know you're going to use this question... And you know the correct answer is D. And you know that answer A, if a child answers that, it's because of this reason. If they answer B, it's because of this reason. It means you can go in with explanations, resources, help sheets, lined up ready to go for the kids who answer that Absolutely. as opposed yeah. to trying to think on your feet if it's a non-multiple choice question <laughs> a, kid, a kid's answered this and I've got to think what the hell where the hell's that answer come from and what am Absolutely. I going to what am I going to do about it whereas I can do yeah. all my planning before the lesson yeah, so, yeah. so that's one thing I like about them and the second thing is we can use the wrong answers so yes. even if a child gets a question right it's not the end of the question no, so the correct so. answer was C so you can then go say to the child why was it not B why was it not B mm. why is the question question writer put a in there what misconception would that reveal yeah really dissect the answers and the thinking behind the design of the question things like that yeah it's such a useful thing and and even for differentiation i find it useful so i'll ask a multiple choice question let's say the correct answer is c group of kids get c right a load of kids have got the other answers so i can say right the kids who've got C right, I've, I've just got to sort the rest of these kids out. <laughs> so you lot, what I want you to do is I want you to write me an explanation of where each of those wrong answers came from. Yes. Why are those wrong answers there? And then I want you to create your own question. I would then definitely think about building in some answers where they have to show they're working out, what, you know, whether it's a long answer question or whether it's a calculation, just to see if they're making any errors that maybe I haven't anticipated yet or maybe the exam board hasn't quite anticipated yet. So I think I'd add a bit of that in as well. But, you know, it doesn't take anything away from the use of multiple choice questions and again this comes back to classroom culture that i don't want the kids to see this as i'm assessing them in the moment this yeah. has to be a learning thing really? i i need to know what you know and what you don't know oh so, so do they yeah, they need to know exactly. what they know i always say to my students the most powerful thing you can know is what you don't know and Ooh, as soon I like, as you <laughs> hey, say that again that's, that's flipping good i like that go, go for Thanks. that one again the most powerful thing you can know is what you don't know wow and as soon as you realize what you don't know oh, you can, you know, you can accelerate towards success, really, can't you? Because you can fill those gaps as quickly as you can. Last thing I want to speak to you about is the process of writing multiple choice questions. Mm. Um, Is this something that you do? Do you write your own? And if so, do you find it a useful thing to do? Absolutely. Recently, I wrote 
multiple choice questions for definitions in physics. Okay. This is my most recent one. Can what... you give me one live? Can, we do, can we do one? Now, I am horrendous Let me have a think at back. physics. <laughs> so g- give me a nice easy one, maybe, to get me in. One of the ones would be something along the lines of yep. define the farad. The what? The farad? farad. Ginny, what are you giving me here? The farad? Yeah. F-A-R-A-D. Define the farad. And I'll tell you now, <laughs> if this was a non-multiple choice, I'm leaving this one out. So, right, go on. Give me, a okay. couple of, give me a couple of options. It is the unit used to measure capacitance. Okay. It is where, let's say, one farad is equal to one coulomb stored per unit potential difference. <laughs> it is charge over potential difference. God. Now, technically... Yep. All three of them are completely interrelated. Oh, okay. okay. So the thing about the farad is it is the unit for capacitance. Obviously. I mean, I was just about to say that to well, you, you interrupt. But it wouldn't be the right well, answer, would it, obviously? <laughs> as I was going to go on to say, you're correct. Yeah. So the idea behind this question is that when you are defining quantities, you should define them with quantities. But if you're defining a unit, you should define it with other units, if that... You okay, know. yes. Um, so being a unit, the farad, you'd be looking for the answer that involves other units ah, right. whereas the charge stored per potential or yes. poten- oh, whatever I said yes. charge over <laughs> potential difference actually has listed the quantities which is the correct equation for capacitance but doesn't answer the question and then the top one actually just says what it is and isn't a definition of a unit That's, so and again that goes yeah. back to what we said before where you're learning something mm. from the kids answers let me try and sell you on this dream right Ooh. so this this is something we do in our department tell me if this is the worst <laughs> idea you've ever heard on. okay right so picture the scene so me, me and you uh me and you're here right yeah let's say we're teaching i'm going to get you back here so none of this physics <laughs> nonsense let's say we're teaching ratio a proper topic here so we're teaching ratio <laughs> so what we would do is um i would write a question on yeah. ratio and you would write a question on ratio okay And on the back of the piece of paper, you would Mm -hmm. write your choice for, let's say, the four answers of the multiple choice. So Mm -hmm. one right answer and your choice for the three wrong answers. And Mm -hmm. I would do the same on the back of my piece of paper. And then we would swap questions and I would look at your question and I would write what I think would be four good answers. And you would look at my question and write what you think would be four. And then we'd compare. Lovely. And what's nice about that is when I look at my answers and then I look at your answers to the same question sometimes we'll have the same so like a common misconception but more often than not you'll have an answer that I won't have thought of and I think actually I should have included that one and then we can have a really good conversation about why did you pick that one well I've seen my kids do this last year so I find like a collaborative way of writing these is is actually a really good thing to stimulate discussion within in the department between colleagues. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And I think when we look at the fact that our colleagues are teaching different cohorts of kids, yes. you know, different cohorts of kids, sometimes they're setted and you might find completely different levels of misconception, misunderstanding and just plain wrong ideas that they've managed to pick up from somewhere. And when you compare those, actually across the board, you've got a whole host of things that you can turn around to your students and just sort of say hey looks let's look at why this is wrong you know so yeah 100% collaborative planning for that would be definitely up my street well Ginny I could literally talk <laughs> to you all night about multiple choice questions but I think they're going to kick us out of your classroom so we <sighs> best end it there Ginny Absolutely. thank you so much this has been an absolute pleasure thank you very much well I feel like I found a kindred spirit in fellow MCQ fan Ginny I love this idea that the most powerful thing you can know is what you don't know. And that's where multiple choice questions really come into their own in the classroom. 
We should all be using them, not just for simple recall, but to really probe our students' understanding. If you've been convinced of the merits of MCQs and want to use them more in your classroom, head to the podcast show notes, where you'll find some examples of MCQs that have been annotated to highlight their strengths. Throughout this series, I'll be seeking out more exam writers, markers and pioneering teachers to ask them all of our burning questions. So if you want to swat up ahead of exam season, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, goodbye.